Hello, hello. Am I on now? Okay, there we go. Love to hear my own voice. All right. Well, if you are new with us this morning or for whatever reason you missed last week, you are joining us on week two of a series that we are going through tackling the topic of justice. And we talked about this last week, how that word can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so truly one of our ultimate goals over the course of this series is really just to get to a unified, a right, and honest view of what is justice. What do we mean when we say that word? What do we mean when we talk about it? And as we also talked about last week, our understanding of justice, it, it has to do with far more than just any current cultural topic has to do with more than just any incoming or outgoing election cycle, that our understanding of justice actually affects a lot about the way that we live our lives, affects the way that we make decisions, what motivates us. And we also saw that last week that the topic of justice is at the core, the foundation of a story that God has been writing with all of humanity, with all of creation since the very beginning. We talked about the early chapters of that story last week. We really covered the whole first half of that story, and we saw that at the heart of each chapter, at the heart of that first half, was God's ultimate goal to redeem and to restore all to himself once again. His ultimate goal was to make right all that was made wrong in light of the fall, in light of Genesis 3. We saw at the heart of this story was ultimately God's mission for justice. And so where we ended last week, where we begin this week, is at the point that I think most would consider the climax of our story. It is a point in our story that every previous chapter points to and every subsequent chapter points back to. It is the point in our story where we meet a man named Jesus. And we will find that Jesus will, in fact, be that solution, that savior, that all of creation has been groaning for since Genesis 3. We will see that he will be who brings with him the opportunity for both personal salvation as well as universal restoration. He will be the fulfillment to that initial promise to Abraham. He will come through the line of Abraham and bring with him blessing, protection, and justice for the whole earth. He will fulfill that promise to Moses as he comes to gather and equip a people who will be the embodiment of blessing and justice for all. He will be the fulfillment of that final promise, that new covenant that came to us through the words of Jeremiah. He will overcome the power of sin and iniquity. He will come as the incarnated word of God, ready to be received in the hearts of men so that all would know him, so that all would be restored to him the God of all creation. He will break into the story once more. He will send his son in flesh and blood, and he will bring with him a kingdom. So this morning, what we are going to spend our time doing is really starting to unpack and seek to better understand that kingdom, what it's all about, its nature, its essence. Because if that kingdom truly is, the means through which that blessing and protection and justice will come for all, then the better we understand that kingdom, the better we understand how it works, how it ought to function, the better we will understand what blessing for all is all about. The better we will understand what justice for all must encompass. 
In order to understand justice, church, we have to understand the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom that will fulfill God's mission for justice once and for all. So I'm going to go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into what this kingdom's all about. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you eager this morning, ready to learn more about what you offer, Lord, what you have promised, what you have guaranteed to us, God. Lord, I just ask that we would um, listen, Lord, that we would uh, engage with what you have promised, with open hearts, with eager hearts, God, and that we would leave this room far more confident of not only the God that you are, but what you are doing in us, what you are doing in this world. We ask all of these things in the power and the sweet name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so to begin our understanding of what is this kingdom all about, I'm going to turn us to a passage found in Luke chapter 7. And just to give us some context about what's going on um, in these verses that we're about to look at, so before Jesus came, there was a man named John the Baptist who had been tasked to essentially pave the way for Jesus, to begin to declare his soon coming. So John the Baptist has been enacting in this role for a while and has begun to form um, and gather some disciples and followers of his own. And so it's at this point in Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 6 really, that a few of John's disciples have begun to catch wind of this man named Jesus. They've begun to hear and even see some of the miraculous works that he's doing. And so it's at that point that we dive into Luke chapter 7 verses 18 through 22. It says, then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits. And he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. So what's happening here is these disciples approach Jesus with this question, are you him? Are you this expected one, the one that John has been paving a way for, this promised Messiah, this promised Redeemer who was to come and usher in this eternal kingdom of God that would reign forever? And Jesus answers their question in a very Jesus-like way. You can't just say yes or no. It's far too fabulous for that. Likes to make a spectacle. And so essentially he says, look around. What do you see? What do you hear? And what he's doing there is essentially pointing to this undeniable proof that he is, in fact, the expected one. That this promised kingdom is, in fact, here. And what's important is what he is pointing to. Right? This undeniable proof that Jesus draws their attention to, it isn't his increase in fame. It isn't the mass amount of followers that he's accumulating. He also doesn't point to an increase in good moral behavior of those that are following him. Doesn't point to his followers becoming more and more obedient or perfect. Because that's not what the kingdom was supposed to be about. 
What he points to is the physical, social, psychological, and spiritual needs being met in the midst of his presence. What he points to is the very real, everyday ailments and injustices that are being righted in light of his power. Because that's what his kingdom was about. The kingdom God had promised, the kingdom Jesus now comes to proclaim and usher in, it was seeking to make right all that sin had corrupted. And as we saw last week, sin corrupted far more than just individual behaviors, than personal hearts and souls. We saw sin corrupted both the personal and the communal. It corrupts both the physical and the spiritual. It corrupts both the individual as well as every environment, system, and structure individuals will take part in. And we see that even today. We see the effects of sin personally. Right? We see the examples of, say, individual greed that could lead to an idolatry of our wealth. But we also see it in communal greed that could lead to economic systems protecting the powerful and smothering the vulnerable. We see it in individual self-centeredness that can distract us and blind us from the hurting and the suffering of those around us. But we also see it in communal self-centeredness that allows the privilege to ignore and drown out the voices and the cries of the hurting. We can see it in individual fears that may lead to racist, sexist, ableist mentalities, but we also see it in communal fears that can lead to sexist, racist, and ableist policies. We see the effects of sin not only in the shame, the guilt, the brokenness that keeps us from our own flourishing, but we also see it in the ignorance, the biases, the corruptions that keep our neighbor from their flourishing. And so this kingdom that God had promised, this kingdom that Christ comes to bring forth, it is concerned with all of that. It is concerned with bringing justice to each of these areas of humanity. It is concerned with both the individual and the communal. It is concerned with mental and physical health as much as it is spiritual. It is concerned with both broken people and broken systems. This holistic nature of Christ's kingdom is referred to in the Brown Church as Mission Integral. The theologian that coined that term, Rene Padilla, he puts it this way, it is the mission of God to the whole of humanity in all its forms, personal, communal, social, economic, ecological, and political. Martin Luther King Jr. gives a similar words to a similar concept. He says the gospel at its best deals with the whole man, not only his soul, but also his body, not only his spiritual well-being, but also his material well-being. 
a religion that professes a concern for the souls of men and is not equally concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion. Jesus makes it clear from his first declaring that this kingdom has come and will continue to make it clear through the Sermon on the Mount, through his endless physical healings, through his provision of food for the 5,000, through his protection and defense of marginalized women, through his ceaseless condemnation of both religious and political structures that abuse their power and exploit the vulnerable. If sin has touched it, Christ's kingdom is concerned about it. If it is broken, Christ's kingdom will seek to restore it. If it hinders anyone or anything's chance at flourishing, Christ's kingdom will seek to address it. Church, when we talk about the gospel, salvation, this good news that Jesus came to bring, if we mean only to speak of personal salvation, of the reconciling of our individual stores, souls, the restoring of our individual sins, we cut the gospel short. We share only part of the good news. We miss out on the fullness of salvation, on the mission integral of our God, because his mission his salvation, his good news, it is concerned with the whole of humanity. And it seeks justice in all of its forms. That is what Christ's kingdom came to accomplish. Now what is significant about, about Christ's kingdom is not just what it sought to accomplish, but also who it sought to accomplish it in and through. Now I want to be clear. Jesus came to offer his kingdom to all. And through his life, his death, his resurrection, all will be invited and welcomed into his restorative kingdom. However, the foundations of that kingdom, the treasures of that kingdom, those are found in the lives of the poor and the marginalized. I want us to imagine for a second we have entered the world through Houston, Texas. Already a great win of all the places. <laughs> We've entered this world through Houston and we have been tasked to establish a kingdom that we seek to reach the ends of the earth. Where would you start? I imagine quite a few of us might make our way over to like River Oaks area. I mean, hey, you gotta secure that funding somehow. Some of us might make our way over to Montrose, get those trendy zillennials on board, get them, get them posting on, on the Tiki Talk, the Instagram, right? Thank you, Emily. But of course, you need some stable suburban families with 2.5 kids, right? They're going to be around for the long haul. So you might make your way over to Katy, the Woodlands, Sugarland, where you're probably not going to spend much time in Sharpstown. Probably not going to make your way over to A-Leaf. You might make your way over to the third ward for some type of service opportunity, but you're not going to start your movement there. You're not going to form your foundations there. 
And that is exactly why Jesus declared that his kingdom is not of this world. It did not seek to use the means that the world would have declared were best, were safest, or were most efficient. You see, Jesus starts his kingdom far off from any religious or political power in a borderland that was looked down upon by both Roman colonizers and the already oppressed Jewish people that they sought to colonize. He begins his kingdom among a disadvantaged people in a rejected town at the southern end of a marginalized land. Jesus begins his kingdom in Galilee and will spend most of his life and ministry there among the people the world and its systems had rejected and ignored. As Jesus sought to build this kingdom that would restore the physical, the spiritual, the communal and individual brokenness of this world, he will begin that kingdom among the very people that the physical, the spiritual, the communal, and individual brokenness affected most. Those that did not have the economic means, the relational capital, the authoritative positions, or the safety net of a family unit to protect them. It would be in the lives of the poor and the marginalized that the radiance and the power of Christ's kingdom would shine the brightest. And so we see in both Christ's kingdom and ultimately God's mission for justice, there is a preferential care and concern for those that the world has cast aside. And I want to be clear, it is not because they are most to be pitied. Far from it. It is because in the poor and in the marginalized, there is a power and a presence of the kingdom of God that simply cannot be experienced outside of such desperate, such all-encompassing, such total need. There is a working of the spirit in the suffering of those who have been most isolated and most scorned that cannot be mimicked by a great light show or a well-crafted sermon. There is a working of the spirit in the joy of communities that have been forced to endlessly overcome and persevere that cannot be taught in a Bible study. It cannot be planned for in even the most perfect church program. And so this is why Christ chooses to not only work in and among those that society has rejected and ignored, but he also chooses to identify himself with them. There's a passage in Matthew 25 that speaks of Christ's second coming, his future glory, where all nations will be judged. And it makes very clear the basis on which those nations will be judged. Did they feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, Welcome the foreigner in, clothe the naked, take care of the sick, visit the prisoner. And Jesus says at the end of that judgment, he will declare, declare, truly I say to you, whatever you did for these brothers and sisters of mine, so you did for me. 
He does not take on the identity of the rich young ruler, does not take on the identity of a holy Pharisee. He doesn't even take on the identity of an average fisherman. He deliberately and intentionally chooses to take on the identity of those that society has most condemned, mistreated, and demeaned. And he says, if you serve them, you serve me. The theologian Augustine has these words to say on the same passage. Christ is continually present with us on earth in the poor. And Christ is needy when a poor person is in need and is in hungry when the poor are hungry. To come to the aid of the poor people, members of Christ, is to come to the aid of Christ the head who is present and in need within poor people. You see, we, we see within Christ's kingdom far more than a simple suggestion to be kind to the poor, to be considerate of the needy, to be generous to the oppressed. What we see is a far more radical mandate to be with, to be near, to be among the marginalized. Because to do so is to be near, is to be with, is to be among Christ himself. Christ's kingdom and God's mission for justice goes far beyond some half-hearted sentiment to give more, to serve more, to vote more. Christ's kingdom and God's mission for justice, it demands a dependence and a need of those that is easiest for us to reject and forget about. Christ's kingdom goes beyond asking the question, who are we serving, and instead asks, who are we missing? And what are we missing because of that? What gifts, what values, what goodness, what wisdom, what wholeness are we missing out on church when we not only to fail to welcome in, but also depend on and learn from the disabled, the neurodivergent, the single mother, the refugee, the immigrant? Would we be so bold, church, as to ask even this morning, who is missing? And would we begin to crave? Would we begin to long for, to become excited about the type of wholeness and flourishing we may experience should we begin to desire their friendship, to long to be welcomed into their lives, to know them as intimately as we seek to know Christ himself, to experience more of his presence as we experience theirs. Christ's kingdom makes clear justice is certainly not ignoring nor pitying the marginalized, but it is also not just being kind and considerate of the oppressed. It is about drawing near, learning from, and engaging with in humility the poor, the forgotten, the least of these. Truly believing 
that wholeness and flourishing, the fullness of Christ's kingdom will be experienced in the midst of their presence. This is what Christ's kingdom sought to do and who it sought to do it in and through. There is one more feature of Christ's kingdom that I think is important for us to understand, especially as we seek to now move, move and act on our understanding of justice. You see, I don't think it's too radical or crazy of a belief, especially for Christians, that when Christ returns, he's going to make everything better. Right? You ask any Christian off the street, and they would probably all agree when Christ returns, all will be made whole, all will be right. They'll probably even agree that, of course, at that point, the poor, the marginalized, the outcast, they'll finally be welcomed in. They will be fully taken care of. But where our beliefs can start to get a little more radical, a little more difficult, a little more uncomfortable, is in the belief that Christ and the power of his kingdom, it is not some far-off event that we sit around and wait and hope for. It's the belief that Christ's kingdom is already here. And by the power of his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, Christ has made a way for us to live in the nature and the essence of that kingdom today. It is true. There is a universal and a total reality to Christ's kingdom that no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we accomplish, no matter what we do, we won't reach it. But there is also a very available and present reality to Christ's kingdom that emboldens us to live redemptively now, that empowers us to live in the nature of his kingdom as we await it coming fully. What we need to understand about our time here on earth, our time on this side of eternity, we are not in the waiting room with broken limbs, with atrophying muscles, with worsening wounds, just waiting and praying for the healer to come and make it all better. Church, we are in a training facility. We are strengthening muscles. We are rehearsing steps. We're perfecting form. We are getting our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our souls ready for what we know is coming. If we know holistic restoration is on the way, where greed will give way to generosity, where self-centeredness will give way to empathy, where all fears will give way to perfect love, where the flourishing of our neighbor will mean our own flourishing. Why would we not live like that now? If we know the day is coming where a kingdom will reign that will belong to the least of these, to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the peacemaker, to the persecuted, why would we not exist with them and enjoy their company and their wisdom now? Why would that not be our standard? Why would that not be the new normal that we seek to get used to? As those that claim to know what our Savior has in store, we have a unique privilege 
mission, and opportunity to begin living like we truly believe universal restoration is on the way, to live like we truly believe this eternal kingdom of blessing and justice is coming any second now. Next week, we are going to unpack further why it is that we as a church, why, not just us as a church, Big C Church, why we as a church, why we as the body of Christ have the unique ability and opportunity and mission as those united with Christ, as those indwelt with his spirit, why we have the capacity to live out the nature and the values of this kingdom right now. We will talk about how and why it is we get to join God in his mission for justice and become ourselves people of justice. We will talk about how it is we can care for the whole of man. We can have a preferential care and concern for the poor and the marginalized. How we can live out a reality that is both already and not yet. How we ourselves can live out blessing and justice for all today. Now, speaking of blessing and justice for all today, we have some exciting guests with us this morning who are going to talk about ways in which they are bringing blessing and justice to those that they work with. And they are going to be offering to us um, some ways that we get to join them in that work, um, that we get to enter in and engage with those that they serve and love so well. Um, so I am going to, who's gonna snag the mic? I'm gonna hand it over to them um, and then I'll be back after. Okay, I'll just stand back here. So, um, good morning. Um, we work for a nonprofit called Change Happens, and I'm sorry, I have a little bit of a wheeze going on, so um, it's like for the mask, but. So Change Happens has many different programs. We have over 18 programs. We're located in the Third Ward. Our programs and uh, our poor justice-involved youth. So Voices is for girls who are already justice-involved or at risk of being justice-involved. So sometimes they may already be on the path, and we can identify that like through truancy, substance use, um, other things like risky behavior, right? Maybe they're sneaking out, sneaking out, running away, that type of behavior. So what we do is we provide, um, we follow a curriculum and we do groups in the community, in the facilities, and um, also with girls who are already on probation. So um, it's like, and after that, um, if they're really at high levels, we um, do wraparound case management for them. So, okay. Well, hello, my name is David Ruiz. Uh, I work with the, the male version of this uh, program. And uh, just to give you guys a little background about why I came to Change Happens to let you know that it works. I used to be a probation officer with juveniles, so juvenile probation. And um, I went to court one day and actually referred one of my youth to the Voices program. So before Youth Can even existed. And um, 
I, I don't know if y'all want to raise your hands or probably just think about this in your minds, but um, one of my girls had a job, was doing really well in the community, straight A's, was actually going to graduate a year and a half before everybody else. Do you think in your minds, you don't have to say it out loud, do you think she deserved to get incarcerated again? So me being in court, everybody, unfortunately, was against me and my youth. They wanted to incarcerate her for something she did a year and a half ago, which I'm not going to say, but to be honest with you, people have been locked up for something worse. So um, the judge, everybody, again, I felt like I was going up against everybody because nobody, not even the defense, was saying anything. And it wasn't until we mentioned the Voices program. The judge, I'm not trying to say anything to you know, be rude to the courts, but the judge didn't care about grades, work, absolutely nothing. All they cared about was the Voices program, that she had a mentor and that she was receiving services in the community by the Voices program. That's what saved the youth from not being incarcerated. And so that, that for me showed a lot to the courts to be able to see that this program actually worked. And um, so me being with the, with the boys, with Youth Can, what I do is what I work with is probationers from 10 to 18. And what we do is we try to work with the youth inside the probation facilities. So I don't know if anybody in here has been through this, but being incarcerated, being locked up, being handcuffed is traumatizing for our kids. Not many people understand this because a lot of people say, well, the kid did something wrong. He deserves to be locked up. That's a lot of people's mentality. But, you know, with me, I've been detained. It was in a situation, basically, an ex was speaking a different language and someone thought that I was doing something. So I was actually handcuffed to a Waffle House table. It was kind of, you know, yeah, it, you know, it was nothing crazy. But again, it was traumatizing to me. Imagine being traumatized or going to a school, a police officer handcuffing you and then taking you away. People don't see that. So what we try to do, especially in the facilities as research, research states, we try to help kids while they're incarcerated to be able to transition them into the community. So with the youth can, which is a little different from voices, we work with the kids in the facility. We make sure that whatever's going on in there that they tell us and then we confirm with the families to be able to provide them resources in the community. Because a lot of people ask the same question of, well, why do they reoffend? Why do they keep doing the same thing? They don't have the resources. You know, if you're a gang member and you're incarcerated, you're okay, you're safe. You don't have to be a gang member anymore. But then when you're back at home, it's the same pattern. I have to be a gang member, I have to have a gun, I have to have money. I'm not safe anymore. So a lot of people don't understand that either, which is something that we try to teach our youth and something as wraparound case managers of what we do, we make sure they feel safe. We make sure that they feel like they have everything that they need at home so they don't have to have that criminal activity or that criminal mentality anymore. So that's just something that we do and um, with, again, with Youth Can and together as a team. Yeah, uh, so like we know what works, right? We know that punishing and punishing and punishing people doesn't keep them out of the system. Um, it's like when you think about, um, you know, maybe yourselves or a loved one who needs to make a change, right? We all have some area of growth. So it's the same thing for these kids. And it's hard for us as people to make changes, right? Lasting, healthy changes. So for these young people 
who didn't even have it when they were little. They didn't have that support. They, you know, maybe came from, right, we say these broken homes, right, but they have a lot that they have been through. They never developed that, right, growing up. So it takes a lot for anybody to change. It takes even more for our young people to make that change. Sometimes parents are a barrier, right? Sometimes um, the system already looks at them. Schools look at them. Schools, you know, don't want them in there. They don't want to handle these children who are, you know, possibly loud, right? They might be your fighters in schools. They might be the girls who just won't come in dress code, right? And those little things end up getting these kids in bigger trouble, right? So like dress code violations, the, you know, we know that um, low performance at school, issues at school, that's a problem, right? So and instead of addressing it there, it ends up to truancy. It gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse to where, you know, now a girl is on probation, right? because they never had those issues taken care of, because the school won't give them like everything they need to be successful, which they need more, right? Um, they don't just need your everyday teacher, which is amazing, right? We, we appreciate all our teachers, but they need everybody. They need a counselor who's gonna check in on them. They need somebody who's gonna hold them accountable for their work, just so much more than what um, we realize, because you know we do we know the kid who's loud in class, right? So they might need extra support, but it's it's even deeper than that. When you think about, there are girls in our schools right now who have been trafficking victims, right? That is not a, it's just not going to be easy for them to be successful academically, socially, right? Just they're not going to be able to voice it. Um, it's just a little bit more hard, you know, it's just harder, period, for them. Um, the same thing with boys. It's like if you have somebody who, you know, has been uh, involved in violence, it's just not going to be the same. Life is not the same. Change is not the same. Um, it's not easy. So it's not easy to overcome. It's not easy to move forward, and they just need so much more. And that starts with love and empathy and understanding and all those like things that we talk about. Um, it's like in our faith and in our churches. So one last thing that we ask uh, or just information. We are looking for mentors. All of our kids are all over Houston. And um, typically what we do is we organize a mentorship or we go somewhere and we just ask, you know, we just promote what we're doing and I mean, Everybody qualifies to be a mentor. Everybody has a lived experience, whether it be big or small. Something small can reach to an, a youth that, I mean, again, in the facilities, how it used to be, and it kind of still is. One kid may have not have done a, an offense as bad as another one. Everybody's put into the same situation in a facility. So um, we do both programs, do provide mentorships for our kids. And um, everything. we do have an information booth in the back, too. So if anybody is interested, we would love to be able to talk to anybody else to give more information and to maybe even give a little bit of more experiences with our programs. So thank you, guys.
Thank you. Can you sit in the front every week? You're very helpful. Uh, I was going to transition by talking about what an answered prayer uh, David and Rebecca were to just so many of the desires that we had for what our community involvement could be, but I feel like they just made that very obvious, um, and I even just love how Rebecca said that, like, they know what works. Um, they know what they're doing, and so truly our partnership with them is providing them whatever resources we have to help the incredible work that they know works um, and that they are putting in tireless, tirelessly and effortlessly. Um, and so like they said, there's going to be more information back there. Please go get to know them. That was one of the main answers to prayer was that we find community partners that we can build relationships with, um, that this is more than just an event we show up to every few months. These are people that we want to grow to know and love um, and be involved with uh, beyond just showing up for daily events. Um, so please get to know them, get their information. There's going to be three uh, sign-up sheets back there, basically parsed out by what you are excited and willing and feel uniquely capable to offer. Um, and so as you talk with them, as you digest some more of what they said, think about the resources that you have available, not just monetary, your relational resources. Uh, another one they look a lot for is professional resources. Um, think about the things that you are excited to offer, those that they serve, uh, and then jot your name down. You are not officially signing up for anything by doing that, but it does help me know to who, who to reach out to as we start to plan more and get more um, hands-on and involvement with them. Um, so with that, I am now going to transition us to the rest of our service and invite Ms. Christina up to lead us in communion together. <laughs> 